Well, today is the third Sunday of Epiphany. And Epiphany, um, it's this word that means manifest. And it's this season here in the church calendar that talks about everything that God is doing out there. And so it focuses on three main stories that we find in the Gospels. It focuses on the story of the Magi following a star and finding the Christ child. It focuses on the story of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. And it focuses on the story of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana. And so what's unique about all of these stories for us is that it's about what God is doing outside of the normal parameters. Things that are happening outside of their temple experiences, outside of a sort of prophetic word or a revelation given to a people. It's happening in places like the wilderness. It's happening in places like the river. And so one of the invitations for us in a season like Epiphany is to find out, to sniff out, what is God doing in our lives outside of the places we typically expect to find him? What is God saying to us outside of our Sunday morning gatherings? What is he doing? What is he up to in the world? And so one of the traditions that comes out of the season of Epiphany is home blessings. Many of you participated in these home blessings just a couple of weeks ago. And this is a reminder for us that we are called to go out and even into the spaces like our homes, we're called to cultivate these little pockets of hospitality and peace and respite. Uh, How many of you did participate in the home blessings just a a few weeks ago? Uh, For those of you who haven't, I want to encourage you as we continue to do this next year, go ahead and sign up for it. Um, It's really simple. We come in and splash holy water like in every corner of your house. We're burning sage. It's very involved. Um, Really, it only takes about five, ten minutes. Uh, We can stand there in your entryway, in your foyer, just a couple of prayers. But it's a way for us to mark out our homes as a place of hospitality, as a place where God is being made known. And so the hope then is that as you have family into your home, as you have friends and you have dinner parties and you're raising your children that you're being reminded that this is the call that we are supposed to be carrying into spaces like our homes. But so today is not just the third Sunday of Epiphany, it's also the final Sunday of January. And like, how long is January? It's like three months long. Um, Somebody said the other day, it's like 30 days has September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31 except for January, which has like 93 days. Um, January goes on and on and on, but I hope that there's something about January that still has some of this new car smell to it for us, right? I hope we're still writing 2018 when we mean to write 2019 uh, for anybody who's like still writing the date on a piece of paper these days, I don't know. Any check writers in the house, right? Um, And so for Christians, we know that Advent is the beginning of our new year. This happens back in December, but there's still something about turning a page, right? There's still something about having the physical calendar and going to January 1. And we start to look at the year and we're filled with all these sorts of hopes and dreams and expectations and we set resolutions. How are we doing on our resolutions? Not great, okay. Maybe intentions is a better word for it. What do we intend to do this year? And we kind of have an opportunity to look and say, okay, 
where am I doing well? What are the adjustments that I need to make in a new year? Who do I really want to be? What kind of person do I want to be in the world? And as much as we do that personally, I think we ought to do this corporately. I think we ought to look at our church body and say, who is it that we want to be in a city, in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma? Maybe we need to ask ourselves some questions. Questions like, who is it that God has graced us to be? Not just who we want to be. Questions like, why be another church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there is no lack of churches? Why would we still choose to do this in our little corner of the city? So what is the grace on us that feels like good news to people? And I think there are certain things that all churches are called to do and called to be in the world, but I think there are specific things that us as church communities and church families that were uniquely graced to be in places. And so for Sanctuary, it seems to me that a lot of us found ourselves here at the end of ourselves spiritually. Um, <laughs> this is a really stupid movie with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith and they're both cops, and there's like a scene where they're having to do something with a dog. Does anybody remember this scene? And Will Smith looks at Martin Lawrence, and Martin Lawrence just looks at him and is like, I had a bad experience. And he's like, what do you mean? And he goes, I had a bad experience. And they just move on from it. I think there are a lot of us who found ourselves here at Sanctuary <laughs> because we had a bad experience. Does anybody relate to that? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I had a bad experience. So sanctuary to me seems uniquely graced in a few ways. I think we are, I think we're uniquely graced to hold difference. I think we're uniquely graced to embrace doubt. And I think we're uniquely graced to brave brokenness. But today I really want to focus on, on this first point, that we are grace to hold difference. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, if you haven't noticed, things are pretty chill politically. Um, not a lot going on. Um, speaking of grace, can I tell you guys something that I saw this week that I just thought was really funny? And... If you're on the right or on the left, this has nothing to do with any of that. It's a joke. Can, we, can I get a little bit of margin? Okay. Uh, there's a comedian that I follow, and he gives this whole bit about politics, and especially politics right now in 2019. And he's talking about arguments that he's been having with his friends. And whenever he talks about something that's going wrong, um, his friends are quick to point out, well, you know when Obama was president, we had the same thing, or this thing was happening, or it was way worse for these people. And he goes, I have to admit, I just wasn't paying attention, which is funny. But then he says, because when your mom is babysitting your child, she's the pro. You don't have to pay attention. Like, you don't call in and check up on your mom, like, hey, how are the kids doing? And then he says this, when Gary Busey is babysitting your child... <laughs> You call and you check up on the kids, right? 
little Tulsa reference for our Gary, Gary Busey fans. But historically, sanctuary has been this kind of place where you can find a home regardless of your politics. Like, surprise, there are Democrats in the room. And Democrats, surprise, there are Republicans in the room because our sense of belonging to a community like this is rooted in something deeper than politics. We are not just a homogenous group of like-minded folks. So part of holding difference is this ability to faithfully encounter the other. It requires us to do some soul-searching. We have to ask ourselves a hard question of who do we believe to be the other in our lives? Who is the other for us politically? Who is the other for us maybe spiritually or socioeconomically, ethnically, geographically? Who do we place in this category of other? And before we consider the otherness of other people, I think we need to consider the otherness of God himself. Rowan Williams, um, he has this great line, and when I read it, I thought, that's something Chris Green would say. And so this is Rowan Williams probably quoting Chris Green. (laughs) He says, God's difference is different from all the differences we can imagine. The God of the universe is different in ways that we haven't even thought up yet. He is different in ways that we can't even imagine being different. He is both unimaginably intimate and both unimaginably intimate at the same time and different. This God who can be encountered and felt and and known is not just some extra part of the universe. He's not some extra thing to be discovered. He's not a sock under the bed. He's not this mysterious extra to be found. He's not created and exists like other things that we find in our world. He is different and more different than all the ways we can even imagine being different. He is territory that we cannot control. He is territory that we cannot own. He can be two things at the very same time. Again, unimaginably intimate, unimaginably different. And so when we look at today's lectionary text, in Luke 4, we see Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading this prophecy and what he's basically saying to, this people, to the people in the synagogue is that there is a future blessing. And surprise, here it is, right? He gives kind of like the best mic drop of all the mic drops. He reads a prophecy about this future blessing for the people of God. And then he sits down and he's like, yeah, this has been fulfilled. And you're hearing it today. And what happens? We kind of cut the story off right in the middle But what ends up happening is they get angry and they go and try and throw them off a cliff is what happens. And so this story where Jesus himself is reading the prophecy about himself and telling the people that this prophecy has been fulfilled in himself, it causes both loyalty 
and antagonism. There are people who are like, yes, let's get on this train, and people who are like, no, let's throw that train literally off a cliff. One of the other texts for today is Nehemiah chapter 8, and it's a story of God's people simply hearing the law code being read to them. And this is exciting because this is what defines them as being God's people. But if you go to the story, and we're not going to do it today, you'll see that it causes both mourning and rejoicing. A group of people all hearing the same texts have the capacity and the ability to respond very differently. It causes rejoicing and it causes weeping. It causes celebration and it causes antagonism. But we need to be people who can live with this tension. It's Bishop Ed who gave me this image of the tension we're called to hold is like the strings on a guitar that they have to be pulled and there have to be opposing opinions in the room in order to be stretched out because it's only when you're stretched out that you can make beautiful music for the world. If we are simply just a group of homogenous, like-minded people, there's no tension. And then we cannot make beautiful music for a city like Tulsa. But we don't do well with tension, with encountering other people. We like to make people their issues. We like to reduce people to stereotypes and caricatures. We don't take the time to consider people's experiences and their stories that led them to their opinions and their beliefs. To faithfully encounter the other, I think it requires at least three things from us, which is where I want to spend the rest of our time today. We have to, first of all, I think, abandon our fantasies of ownership. And then we have to develop a ministry of the ear. And we have to cultivate a deep commitment to hospitality. So fantasies of ownership. I think all of us are tempted by this fantasy and this sense of ownership, particularly within people in the church. I think this is especially true of our preferences, that we tend to choose our communities based on what we want, because if we can find what we want, we feel like we have some ownership there. But remember, both in Nehemiah 8 and in Luke 4, they paint a picture of faithful communities, but not necessarily faithful by our standards. We don't get to own the response of other people. Two groups of people hearing the same scriptures responding in drastically different ways. If our approach to other people is based on how they respond and if their response is different from us, that's not really unity. It's uniformity. We're not called to uniformity. We are called to unity so we tend to think that so long as people look like me or believe like me or they think like me, they respond like me, then we are unified. And this is why I think most of our disagreements with other people are rooted in ownership. And we don't own one another. We belong to one another. That's not the same thing. We don't own one another. We belong 
to one another. Rowan Williams puts it this way. He says, Encountering the other becomes truly gracious when we at last learn how to say goodbye to fantasies of ownership. And perhaps that's what faith finally has to offer a world of walls and ditches and wire and border controls. See, we tend to use ownership to control, to protect, to maintain some kind of status quo. And again, we're not called to ownership, but we're called to belonging. This means that when people show up in our communities and they have doubts about what's going on, that doubt is not a scandal to be dealt with, but it can be a journey to be joined. In my experience, most of the people who are wrestling with doubt and questions about their faith, the last thing that they really need is someone to come along and judge them. What they need is to know that they're not alone. What they need to know is that there is a community and a safe space for them to wrestle through these questions and doubts. It's not going to judge them. It's going to make space for them. We need to be open to encounters with the other. The political other, the spiritual other, socioeconomic other, or otherwise. Because I think if we understand God's holiness as complete otherness, then this means there are parts of other people's lives that we don't understand, that we've not yet experienced, but when we open ourselves up to this kind of engagement in the world, I think it unlocks something in our hearts about who God is. I think in engagement with the other has a way of opening up new worlds inside of our hearts and revealing things about who God is that we otherwise would miss out on. But one fear that I think we face is that if we abandon our sense of ownership and control and preference, that it can easily slide into a sort of nihilism, right? That nothing matters. You just do what you do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You believe what you believe. I'm going to do what I'm going to do over here. It's all cool. It's all going to work out. And we're also not called to this kind of community. The difference, I think, is that we simply, we don't abandon one another to our differences but we become better listeners. And this is where we talk about the ministry of the ear. One of the challenges of a post-enlightenment culture, I think, is this unwavering certainty that we know. That if you give me enough time and if you give me enough resources and give me enough space that I can sit down and I can figure it out and I can know with some certainty. And we apply this approach to situations that are completely unknowable. Again, we are living in one of the most politically and socially polarized times in U.S. history. And you don't get here by being open-handed. You don't get here by listening to other people's stories, to their joys and their challenges, to their disappointments, and trying to truly understand where it is people are coming from. 
We need better listeners. We need people who are compassionate. We need people who are empathetic, but not for the purpose of fixing people. We do not need to fix people. Someone once said, 99 times out of 100, we can't fix people. And the one time out of 100 we can, we shouldn't. A ministry of the ear, a deep commitment to listening to one another, it means being quiet. Letting go of the need for our voice to be heard above all the other voices. There's a story of a a guy who was starting his freshman year at a seminary, and his prayer for that first semester was, God, send me someone who can teach me how to pray. And funny enough, God answered his prayer. A gentleman showed up uh, at his door and said, hey, God told me that you're supposed to follow me around as I pray for people. I mean, talk about like an explicit answer to prayer, right? Um, So he's like, great. So he follows this individual around for the semester, and he would go and he would pray with people and they would come and they would have these different needs and he saw miracles happen. And he said, but one of the interesting things that he saw when he was praying with people is that people are getting engaged, they're getting caught up in the passion of the moment and they're crying out to God, they're praying, they're passionate. And he would just say to them, okay, now be quiet. How counterintuitive for us, right? That in the middle of having our prayers answered that he would just say, okay, be quiet. Now, the twist to this story is that after months and months of following this guy around, becoming really good friends with him and and creating this really deep connection with this individual, he found out that they are politically as opposite as opposite gets. And he realized that if their relationship had started on some terms of like, well, so what do you think about this? And how did you vote about this thing? That they never would have connected on anything but he owes this individual such a deep sense of gratitude for teaching him how to pray and be faithful to people. I think this is the kind of listening that we need because the problem is not that not enough people are listening to us. There's a difference. We can talk about the ministry of the ear. We need to be more compassionate. We need to be able to listen to other people's stories and then turn around and get on Facebook and say, okay, here's the problem. Not enough of you people are listening to me. This is not Festivus, Frank Costanza. I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. This is not that. A ministry of the ear, it frees us up to embody a sort of poetic presence in the world. Any poetry lovers in the room? Not a lot. Okay. But see, poetry does have a way of revealing mystery and the miracle lying beneath the ordinary. Poetry has a way of not having to argue or buttress against doubt or to defend anything. We can become a people with a prophetic, poetic presence in the world if we would listen to each other. We can become cures of souls rather than problem solvers. We don't have to be people with all the answers. We don't have to be the enlightened ones. 
who know how to remedy other people. Finally, to be people who faithfully hold difference, I think we must be people of a radical hospitality. Rabbi Hanak, look him up, once said, the real exile of Israel in Egypt was that they had learned to endure it. The real exile of Israel in Egypt was that they had learned to endure it. So I think we need to ask ourselves a few questions. What are the suspicions that we've believed about others that we've come to endure? What if a posture of suspicion instead of hospitality is the heart of exile of the church in America in 21st century? Have we learned to simply endure this kind of posture as a reality? One way that we free ourselves from this kind of exile is through the door of hospitality. We see in Leviticus chapter 19 how it is that we're supposed to deal with strangers, with the others, the people that we don't agree with. And it says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Two things here. Treating others as a native among you means instilling dignity on other people. Because remember, you were once strangers. And the only way that you went from being a stranger to becoming a native is because somebody somewhere along the line said, you have dignity and you have value and you have worth and you are beloved and you belong. See, fear comes when we can't discern our brother and our sister from our enemy. But what if we have been the enemy of our enemies for too long? What if Jesus offers us a liberating power of love? Love that's literally disarming. The love that Jesus puts in place of retaliation is the love of our enemy. Who do you consider to be your enemy? Jesus welcomes them to the same table. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? The wee little man. The wee little man was he. He climbed up in a... Just to see what... Yeah. <laughs> he climbs this tree, which had to look so silly, and Jesus comes straight to him. And a crowd of people walks up to this tree, and he's like, Zacchaeus. And do you remember what he asks him? Are you going to ask me to come to your home? Like, talk about inviting yourself over, right? Like, <laughs> aren't you going to ask me to your home? And imagine the gasps from people 
that have surrounded Jesus, following him in these spaces. And here he is talking to Zacchaeus, this tax collector. He's like, aren't you going to invite me to your home? And here's the point, I think, is that Jesus is not only someone who exercises hospitality, but he draws out hospitality from other people. What if one of the markers of a life that's been changed by the radical love of Jesus is a life marked by hospitality? Who welcomes people into their homes and into their lives to sit down at a meal and listen to one another? If we have experienced hospitality of God in Christ, then our lives are now set free to be hospitable to other people. In no other place do we experience this kind of radical hospitality than at this table. Because you're welcome here. And so is the person that you wouldn't invite to this table. The person that you consider your enemy. The person you consider to be other is invited to the same table. Whose company have you refused at your tables? Is it the company of your political other? Is it the company of those who love differently than you do? Is it the company of women that have been forced to make horrible, impossible decisions that God willing you will never face? Is it the elderly? Is it the youth? Is it those from other countries sojourning in your land? The bad news is that those people you wouldn't invite, Jesus invites to the table. The last story as we wrap up here. There's a story of Jacob. And his family is living in a famine. And so he sends his sons to Egypt to find bread. And on this journey to find bread, what do they find? They find their brother. We come to this table looking for bread. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. But who might we find? Who might we find out there as we offer bread to the world? What if it's our brother? What if it's our sister? So Sanctuary, in 2019, may we be a people who say goodbye to fantasies of ownership. May we be people who cultivate a sincere ministry of the ear. And may we live from a place of deep and radical hospitality. And maybe then we will finally be able to, in Jesus' words, bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, 
and let the oppressed go free. Amen.